Welcome to the 66th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I am your host, Charles Woods. This podcast episode was recorded on the sacred lands of the indigenous people of the Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, and Miami. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Pulitzer Prize winning writer John Archibald about his new book, Shaking the Gates of Hell, A Search for Family and Truth in the Wake of the Civil Rights Revolution. Silence. I mean, my mind is sinister and, and you know, I'm not one to, to talk about um, sin because, uh, you know, I, it, it's just not sort of my nature. But if, 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 if there is such a thing as sin, it's certainly keeping silent in the face of evil. So far, the fourth season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast has featured people from around the world discussing their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to their community. I mentioned during Season 3 that I am inspired by many of the scholar podcasters working in rhetoric and writing studies to try out new formats for certain episodes, hence the Election Eve monologue. To Find interesting guests to talk to who are working outside the disciplines. All these things I do with the goal of extending the reach not only of the podcast, but of the work scholars in our disciplines are doing. Today, we diverge from the winding blacktop of rhetoric, writing, and technical communication studies onto the forgotten dirt roads of North Alabama through the hillocks and knolls of Fox Valley into the pulpits of Methodist churches at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and into the memories of a father whose silence was resounding so much so that it led to a son's reckoning. John Archibald was born on April 5th, 1963, into the cradle of the civil rights movement. As John points out in Shaking the Gates of Hell, this was a moment in time defined by the tension between radicalization and revolution. It was Birmingham and it was Bombingham. It was a time when people asked the race question, but many did not answer it. Instead, they remained silent, like John's father, the Reverend Robert L. Archibald Jr., John and I talk about silence. We talk about sacrifice and we talk about silence and what those things meant then and what they mean today. We talk about growing up in a place where religion makes the grass green and the sky blue and puts food on the table. We talk about the race question. Yet, after reading John's book and producing this episode, I know that one of the most important things we talk about is family, the mythology of Murray, the parable of the prodigal son, the sounds of silence. John Archibald is the author of Shaking the Gates of Hell, a search for family and truth in the wake of civil rights revolution, which was published by Alfred A. Knopf, in 2021. In 2018, John won the Pulitzer Prize for his commentary on politics in the state of Alabama, and in 2020 was awarded a Neiman Fellowship to study the intersections of media and crime at Harvard University. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Archibald. Who are you? What's your name, your title, your institution? You can take that however you want. And what do you do there? Um, I, uh, my name is John Archibald. I'm a, a columnist for Alabama Media Group, which is includes the Birmingham News in Alabama, the Huntsville Times, the Mobile Register, and the website al.com. And I'm currently on sabbatical uh, at... Uh, Harvard uh, for a Neiman Fellowship, which is, uh, I've never felt dumber in my life. <laughs> well, that Neiman Fellowship, um, which you were awarded in 
2020. What did this opportunity allow you to do? Um, it allowed me to come up here uh, with my wife and and take classes at Harvard, uh, uh, and which uh, has been great because I've been you know trying to tell. My whole goal is to try to find different ways to tell stories, and so I found myself in writing classes and playwriting classes and those sorts of things. But it's also given me a chance to kind of study how how we cover crime in the digital age, which is why I came up here in the first place, and and how media coverage can affect uh, people's perceptions and, and those sorts of things. That sounds fascinating. I might have to talk to you a little bit about further off air about that. Sure. Um, so your book is Shaking the Gates of Hell, A Search for Family and Truth in the Wake of Civil Rights Revolution. Mm -hmm. And it was published by Alfred A. Knopf in 2021. In your book, you interrogate your relationship with your father and other relationships in the Archibald clan and extended families against the backdrop of the struggle for civil rights in the 1960s and today. When did you first know you wanted to write about your father and what propelled you into this project specifically? Yes. Um, before I answer that, I, I wanted to just say up front that I love my dad and always did and think and will always forever think of him as as the steadiest, most genuine person I've ever known, uh, which is sort of the reason to answer your question. Because, you know, I was born in April of 1963, which is the precise moment outside Birmingham, Alabama, which is the precise moment in time that, that Martin Luther King was in jail 23 miles away writing the letter from a Birmingham jail, which for those who don't know, not only outlined sort of his reasons for uh, and strategies for civil disobedience, but excoriated the white church for silence in the face of civil rights, in the civil rights movement. And my dad was a preacher there. So, you know, I'd always thought, you know, I, I thought he, I knew what he would say because I knew what he said at home and he was one who, um, was, uh, uh, you know, he, he spoke a lot at home about it um, for that. And, but after he died, this would have been uh, December of, or he died at 13, but in, in December of, uh, I guess it was 18, um, I realized that every sermon he'd ever given over the course of his 60-year preaching career was in file cabinets in my basement. And, you know, I didn't really listen to him as a kid when he was given. And so I decided I would take a look at him. And I started at the, you know, down in Birmingham, we consider ourselves the cradle of the civil rights movement in some ways. Uh, and so I look at those important dates, the, the date that, you know, as I just spoke of when, when King was in jail and, and the Children's Crusade, as it was called, was going on in Birmingham. And, um, and which thousands of, children were arrested for marching with Dr. King. And uh, ironically, I guess, uh, the next Sunday was uh, on the church, on the church calendar was Children's Sunday. And so my dad was preaching on Children's Sunday in the middle of the Children's Crusade, as we now call it. And he didn't mention anything uh, that was going on there. He talked of trouble in Africa and Asia, South America, things like that. Um, but there was no mention of the things that were going on right outside the doors, you know. So that bothered me. And I was like, that's not the guy I know. And why is this happening? And and so I continued to look on, you know, Selma to Montgomery March days. I mean, then all of them eventually. And and during that tumultuous time, there was very, very little said. The silence was pretty deafening. And so I set out to find out why. The cradle of the civil rights movement, Birmingham the environment, our natural parsonage, the earth, Methodist camps in the hills of Appalachia, and once forgotten overnights beside fires across the country, mm. the names of birds and trees I'll never know or remember, are memories you recreate and share with your readers as you describe your childhood with your parents and your siblings, Murray, Mary Beth, and Mark. What did you learn about research methods and your writing process and taking wow. on this new genre, the memoir, which to me seems very different than your commentary? 
Right. Well, it's, it isn't, is it? And it isn't, you know, in some ways, because I do think over the course of time, I, a lot of the things that I write about in seemingly harsh ways are, are things that are written because, I mean, this sounds so hokey to say, it sounds really hokey to say, but, but they're written essentially in love. You know, I mean, I love my home state. I love the place that I live. I love the South. And yet I, I grow so frustrated at times at the things that are allowed to take place in the name of religion or in the name of the South or in the name of loyalty or in the name of all of these things. And, um, and usually it winds up hurting people and, you know, without much consideration. And so um, I felt sort of the same way about this, um, not sort of, I felt exactly the same way about this. And I've also found in writing columns, I mean, honestly, this is just the, the truth. If you wanna talk about how good someone is, you have to first acknowledge their flaws because if you don't acknowledge their flaws, then anything you say is, um, is uh, you know specious? I mean, you know, we we have to look at people in a, in the fullness of them in a lot of ways. And so again, going back to that letter from jail and in in, uh, in in the year the month I was born, um, you know, I can't. I mean, the sort of the theme of this book became, you know, you can't. There can't be great disappointment where there's not great love, as King said in the letter when he was talking about the church, you know. And so, so when I look at my dad and see disappointment, it's it's in that love that that's the only reason I'm disappointed. And so, so trying to, I mean, I don't know if I'm answering your question about uh, the, the writing process, but what I really wanted to do is was this search. I wanted to know why my dad was silent at this time. And that developed into part of the book. Part of the book is just quest for understanding. And so I divided in my mind this way, the quest, I'd have a chapter of the quest and then I'd have a chapter of the, the man I knew, the father I had, the guy who was going into uh, bathrooms to clean my sister's name off the wall that somebody had scrawled in, or showed up at court for me when I got into trouble without me. I thought I had kept a secret from him, but no, he managed to come. I mean, the guy who was always there, because I think that that it was important. I thought it, I thought and continue and continue to think it was important for you to know the, the man I was talking about in the family so that you would understand sort of my disappointment in it, in him. And, you know, and I also really believe that if you can, if you, if you can hold up your heroes and see the flaws in them, then you can see them in yourself a little bit better. And that's, that's the goal. So in the writing of it, I wanted to tell a story People say it's a book about my dad, but I, I see it as a book told through my dad uh, about us, and that's that's the goal anyway. Some of the passages about your father and his seemingly boundless love are are really some of the most striking. But your book is about family. It's about civil rights, the race question, but it's also about religion. In fact, you grew up in a place where it seems everything is about religion even beyond your father's calling and the Methodist churches you grew up in and the camps where you spent your summers. In your book, how do you reconcile the role religion played in silencing movements for civil rights in the South when you were growing up? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, and you have such a beautiful way of, of speaking. It's, uh, it's striking. The, whole, the book, in my uh, view, is is an attempt throughout to answer that question because I can't reconcile it because I mean I have to acknowledge that this the whole uh, you know first of all everything I mean my dad was a Methodist preacher his dad was a Methodist preacher his dad was a Methodist preacher his dad was a preacher my, on my mother's side my grandfather was uncle and aunt they are everywhere and everything that I am was created in that in that environment of the Methodist church and, and, and which, you know, I can't, couldn't get rid of if I tried, you know, it's, it's in there and, and these things are there, but I also have come to realize um, how very little I knew 
uh, about what was really happening in the world at that time and in the church at that time. And that throughout much of my life, it's been embroiled in, in a lot of trouble and schism and, 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 and contradiction. And, um, and, you know, as I talked to, to preachers that were contemporaries of my dad in the South at that time, and they would inevitably tell me, you know, if you talk, they didn't want us talking about race. And if you talked about race from the pulpit, you could be looking for a new church next week, or you could be moved to a tiny little church where you'd spend the rest of your career, and you'd be put on the list that that prohibited you from going to to larger churches, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, and so they always told me, uh, you know, he was doing this for you. I mean, you know, he wanted to give you guys a better life, and. And I fully understand that, and it doesn't make me feel at all better because it, it just makes me a part of it. And and I, I see so many people who who sacrifice so much, and I just I just it, I, it, it it gets to be difficult because I on one hand know that you can't go back in time and know how anybody would behave. We can't we can't with any surety know how we would behave in 1960. Uh, as adults, and um, or in or in 1860 or in whatever, but we can look back and see what the people we care about did, and we can mourn their mistakes and cheer their successes and decide we which ones we want to act like today. And that that I think is my goal in in understand in trying to to both understand and to and to pass it along a little bit. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge-making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. Sacrifice. Silence. As you point out, with some assistance from Simon and Garfunkel, <laughs> silence can be noisy. It can be deafening. To me, silence can be immovable. What did you learn about silence in the 1960s and silence today in writing Shaking the Gates of Hell? And how can we right now work to move or move past silence and build an equitable future? Right. Uh, you know, that's, that's such a great question. And it is, is one that, you know, it's tormenting me. Silence, I mean, my mind is sinister. And, si and you know, I'm not one to, to talk about um, sin because, uh, you know, I, it, it's just not sort of my nature. But if, 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 if there is such a thing as sin, it's certainly keeping silent in the face of evil. Um, and if you're, and, and you know, and I hate to say this about my dad, who I continue to love and respect, you know, but if you have a pulpit and people come to you to find out what's good and what's right and what's the direction they should go, and you don't use it to point out the, 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 I, I've used the word evil too much, but I'm going to say it again, but the evils outside your own stained glass windows, um, when you deflect the idea of right and wrong to faraway places um, rather than in your own backyard. I mean, I think that that approaches sin in that, in that, and in, in that secular way, I would like to look at sin. And, um, and so, 
and, and we do it so often. We do it to protect ourselves. We do it to, and I, again, I have to interject all the time. But, you know, I realize they pay me to write opinion. So not everybody has that, that, you know, has the same freedom that I have, you know, and you know what I mean. It's being able to talk, uh, being able to talk about whatever you want to talk about is a gift. It's like money, you know, it's like, it's a, people, not everybody has that. So, I mean, I don't say that, I mean, silence, I mean, that, that, that breaking the silence has to sound like me or you or anybody. I mean, you speak within your own personality, you speak with the voice you're able to speak with. Um, and, uh, it can take many forms, whether it's, it's, it's standing up to talk at a, in a, in a crowded room where people are, uh, arguing, or it can be just sitting around the dinner table or talking to friends or, or, or just, you know, saying something out loud to yourself that helps you to say it louder next time, you know? I mean, it's just a moment. As I was writing this, I was just thinking over and over again, when was I silent? Because Lord knows I was. Yeah. And when did I say the wrong thing? I mean, I write a column three times a week. Of course I say the wrong thing. <laughs> and, uh, so, I mean, you know, and I, 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 it, it was, I hope it's introspective in that regard too. I mean, we're all guilty of it. It's not, it's not look back and see what uh, some, somebody did wrong. It's how do we do better? And I, I, I babble on and on about that, but, but the, uh, I just, I, I, I just think we all have pulpits and we better use them or else we'll regret it. And I, and I don't mean religious pulpits again, they yeah. can come in all forms. Right. So no father-son relationship is perfect. Mm -hmm. At times, I found myself reconciling my own differences with my own father while reading your book. Perhaps I shouldn't tell listeners this, but at times I wept and it was therapeutic. Why is it important for us to grapple with the legacies of our fathers and the decisions of the generation that came before us? And why does it so often seem impossible for many people facing the race question in the American South? Well, that's a great question also. Um, why it's important, I think, is because we're in their position right now. I mean, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, we are the ones who are trying to survive. And, and uh, you know, many of us are trying to make it a better place for everybody. And, um, and we can't know um i mean it's so cliche to talk about you know you got you can't know history or you're going to repeat it but we are and you yeah. know when you look back you can uh you can see um you can see the missteps and you can see how they happened you can see the pressure that was put on people you can see the um, the consequences people faced if, if they did. And you, and, you know, and I talked about the consequences in the Methodist church where, you know, if a white preacher preaches about race, then he, he doesn't get moved to a premier appointment. But, you know, if you, but there, you know, John Lewis was getting his head beat in and Fred Shuttlesworth was getting his head beat in and um, people were getting killed, Liuzo and Selma and, all, and many others. And, um, and so, I mean, that's, that's sacrifice. And so we, you know, as, as I think it's important for us to look at that in context and just say, you know, it's, it's what we're really afraid of is peer pressure uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the times. And that's the hardest thing to break through. And um, once, once you, once you decide that you can do it, and I'm not, and the last thing I'm asking for is for, you know, people to yell at each other on Twitter or, <laughs> right. or, or social media. I mean, that's, that may make you feel better, but it, number one, you never convince anybody of anything by telling them they're an idiot. And number two, um, it, 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 it just, uh, it's just not enough. I am the eldest son of my parents' children, and you are the caboose of yours. Mm -hmm. Something you write about in your book and describe as a great thing. I am envious. Your oldest brother, Murray, who established Camp Rehoboth in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, with his partner, Steve Elkins, plays an integral role in your book. 
What was it about Murray, Murray's lived experiences that made you foreground him in your writing? Well, you know, because um, that's a, that's a, that's a an, another good question, but I mean, it boils down to the fact that again, I mean, he's nine years older than me. And, and, and as I say in the book, I mean, I, I managed to get injured a lot, you know, because I had <laughs> a lot. So I had, I had older brothers and sisters and we played rough and we did dangerous things and I got hurt a lot. And every time I did, you know, the memory I have, the little flashes in my brain that I remember are, you know, Murray holding me as we went to the doctor, Murray holding me at the doctor when my dad passed out, you know, Murray, um, be, and if I, if I go through the pictures and in the family slides, he's always just kind of looking after me, making sure that I'm okay. And that's the Murray I remember. And, you know, and, um, and so, you know, when everybody wants to make, you know, he came out in the seventies. I mean, it was never a surprise to anybody that Murray was gay. I mean, he was gay before I knew what gay was, you know, and, um, but he was always just Murray and he was always just this older brother that looked after me. And so I just thought that telling those stories help people to understand that he's just Murray and it's not this, you know, strange sort of phenomenon. It's just Murray who lived this life of, you know, helping me out and, you know, loving his partner for 35 years. Um, and, and until he died, I mean, until he died. So Steve died. And I hope that, and, and you know, and he, he's very involved in the church in the, in the Methodist church, far more involved than, than I am, you know, I mean, I, 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 but I just thought that, that seeing, you know, my dad's evolution on that issue, as well as the, the racial issues are, was, significant and important because early on my dad was preaching the moral law sermons of his time I guess like a lot of people are still doing today um, but he never for a moment questioned his own love for his son and so when his son came out of the 70s he embraced him from that time and forever on and he gradually was learned how to um, to talk a little more publicly about that but like always he was he had been brought up in a, in the in the church when when the Methodist Church particularly made it a practice to quote keep politics out of the pulpit, which uh, as a wonderful um, ac uh, professor by the name of Bill Nicholas talks about in the in the book uh, by simply saying you're going to keep politics out of the pulpit you're making a political decision and um, and so I digress a little bit there but uh, but that's I mean I think. It, I think Murray's a really important part of the book. And I think that uh, the churches, in some cases, uncanny similarity of how they treated black people in, uh, in Alabama in particular in the, in the 60s, in some ways mirrors the language now that, that, that some in the church are using to, um, to limit uh, the roles of gay and lesbian people. When I was reading, I kind of thought of it as the mythology of Murray. Uh, and so I wonder, how has Murray and your other siblings, Mary Beth and Mark, how have they responded to shaking the gates of hell? Uh, well, you know, it, it's funny you say mythology, because a lot of it is. I mean, I'm the youngest, you know, and these stories get passed to me. Right. And I have to... Um, put them together and I, you know, I, I sent them to all, I sent them to all of them beforehand to make sure that I wasn't getting too out of hand. Um, and, uh, you know, Murray, it's, it, Murray uh, has, has just been, I mean, he, he, they've all been great. First of all, um, and, you know, there's different levels of love for it. Shall I say, took my sister a little bit longer to get used to because she didn't want to read it because she was afraid of what it'd say, because, uh -huh. you know, when you describe, when you describe what you're trying to do, what you feel like you have to do, and that is I have to hold my dad accountable. And this, he's someone we all love and still love. Um, you know, that can be a difficult thing, um, but uh, but they've, uh, they've been great about it. And, and Murray is actually gonna do a book talk with me coming up pretty soon in Rehoboth, which I'm really looking forward to because, uh, you know, people ask what he thinks and what's, you know, is, is this for real? <laughs> 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some stories in there about, about the plays and productions he did as a kid, which when I wound up in a barrel at one point. But uh, uh, so people are eager to ask him those questions. Um, I can't wait. Uh, but, uh, you know, the most important thing to me in this whole book was I really, I felt like I had to write the book when I found those things, but I really did not want it to harm my relationship with my family because uh, we are very close and, um, and that would be a tragedy. You alluded to this earlier. You effectively weave the struggle for civil rights and racial equality and desegregation in the 20th century with the plight for LGBTQ rights in the 21st century. The second part of your book actually shifts gears and considers the parable of the prodigal son throughout some of its chapters. What we learn is that the parable is not about the son, but about the love a father has for his sons, a love which knows no bounds. Your father has sons, you have sons, how does this parable represent the way he lived his life and how you live your life and how you hope others might live theirs as well? Well, I think that it represents, uh, I actually, I think it, I, I think it rep represents my dad very well. Um, and I hope it represents me very well. I think my, I, th I think that I don't have any prodigal kids. They're all pretty, <laughs> pretty well behaved kids, but um but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it, it's unconditional love, which was unquestionable in him um, where, when it came to us for sure. And, and honestly, when it came to the church, which I think was his greatest problem <laughs> because, mm. because he was so devoted to the church that he did everything it asked, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and me, on, I mean, I, on the other hand, am, have far more of a rebellious streak maybe um, always have, I think. And, um, uh, so, um, I would be more likely to be the prodigal son, but, um, but I think that I lost, I'm, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. It was going to make such beautiful sense and then it didn't. Um, but, uh, I, I, I think that what was important to him was to show that love is the thing that is important and the judgment we tend to make about other people has nothing to do with that love. It should have nothing to do with that love. And, um, and he told that, he used that parable all the time in his sermons. He used that in the, the Good Samaritan and all this. And I, and I complain about it in, in the book some because in the, that time in the 60s when he couldn't really talk about race, he would talk about the Good Samaritan and, and in ways I think that he wanted people to absorb um, as, as something that would uh, uh, illuminate them on issues of race. But it was a time where he needed, I, th I thought, to be more uh, concrete. Because sometimes a parable, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes a parable will, will make a, a point. But if you tell a racist a parable about the Good Samaritan, he's probably not going to look at himself in that regard. So um, I think sometimes you need to be more specific. Let's talk about what it means to be good, to do good. In your book, you write about your father and his ministry, and you ask, quote, but is it enough to be a good man, a good person? Are there not times when you must say and do more? Are there not moments in history when you must take your fist or your head and pound on your podium, on your pulpit? Two tough questions. Now that the project is complete, what is your perception of good white men in the South during the civil rights movement? And what does that even mean? Do you see your book as performing the work your father could not or would not do at a time when America is in flux culturally. Um, make sure I don't forget the second part of that because it's a great part of the question. Um, but <clears throat> well, I'll go ahead and answer it and you can ask me the first part again. Um, 
You know, I, I think it sounds a little arrogant to say that I hope that that, that that's true, that, that this does carry on and maybe fill in the gaps from when he wasn't sure enough to speak. Um, and in some ways, I believe, I mean, I do believe that. I mean, I, not in some ways, I, I truly do believe that. And I feel like, and I mentioned this in the book, it was one of the most remarkable things when I looked back on it, that was not one of those remarkable things when it happened. Um, but the last time I saw my dad alive, he was in hospice and I went to see him and we talked, he could barely talk, but, but one of the things he, he did was to reach over and grab me by the hand and say, uh, you know, that he was proud of me for taking on issues of race and he, um, cause I had really recently written some things about it and, and always do cause I live in Birmingham and, uh, you know, it's, it's relevant all the time. Um, but I mean, I didn't really think about that at all at the time because I didn't know at the time that he had struggled with those issues so greatly. Um, and I feel like that the way he reached out to me and the time in which he reached out to me uh, meant that it was something that bothered him. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that he would be happy that I put it all in a book uh, that, that's being, you know, that, that questions his own strength, but I think that he would be um, really happy and supportive of uh, the, 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 the overall message and the way it seems to, in most circles anyway, by people I care about, seems to be understood that it is about love. Let me, let's go back to the first part of that question you told me to redirect you to. Okay. Now that the project is complete, what's your perception of good white men during the South in the South during the civil rights movement? And what does that even mean? Well, I mean, it, it means there's a lot of failure there. And if I uh, think of, I mean, even among the people I most look up to, I mean, including my father, but, it, but, but there's a man named Charles Morgan who I quote in the book, who's a lawyer and um, and on the on the day after um, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, in which four little girls were killed on in September of 1963, he, he got he went before a, uh, he was he was scheduled to speak at a downtown civic club in Birmingham, and he gave what I consider to be the most beautiful speech I've ever heard. I mean, I think it, it and I, I his family let me include it in its entirety in the book, which I appreciate. Uh, but every time I read that that speech, I cry because it is so true. I mean, it is about who who essentially is responsible, um, and, and the answer was, you know, everybody who uh, who who refused to speak up, every church who refused to to respond, every preacher. I mean, every I mean, he goes down. I mean, it, it's a long, beautiful um, speech about. Um, responsibility beyond ourselves and our own homes and uh even he was too late i mean he, he he went on to do amazing things he was run out of town but you know it's it's those people who and and you know my my dad was a good i mean i i i, I don't ever resolve that question my dad was a good person he i mean he helped anybody he could help he um integrated scout troops and made sure that I understood the way the world really was. And his failures, again, were failures to speak from that pulpit. Um, but I, I think if, if we're given an opportunity, I mean, it, and, and this is largely because of the, again, again, I've said this, I'm sorry to repeat myself, but, but it's those moments of little silences that, that haunt me. And, and to just think that you didn't say what you needed to say to to try to you know make the world just a little more fair um i think is uh goes a lot a long way to goodness but i mean you can't put goodness in a box either i mean uh you know the greatest people who've ever you know fought for other people have flaws and and the and the worst people who who maybe didn't ha have uh have good qualities as well, I know. But, um, you know, we can all be good in little ways and we can all be good, you know, in big ways. We can rarely be good all the time. Um, but, I, but I do think that that effort 
um, is really important. And and uh, in speaking up is certainly a, one of those ways. As I mentioned earlier, Shaking the Gates of Hell is a book about civil rights, religion, the race question, but it's also about family. You write about your relationships with your parents and siblings, their partners, your wife, Alicia, mm -hmm. but you also write about Drew and Ramsey and Mamie. Mm -hmm. Your book is not a love letter to your father, and you don't write as an apologist for silence for white supremacy. What do you hope your kids and one day their kids, these generations which come after you, us, what do you hope they take from your book? Why is it important? Um, I don't know why. I just, you just almost made me cry a little bit. Um, uh, you know, it, it's remarkable how much my children have taught me through this, not just through this, but leading up to this. And that's, you know, uh, and, and that is, you know, pushing me to be uh, um, more, I mean, which is funny because I write fairly um, uh, bluntly about a lot of uh, corruptions and, and um, wrongs in the world. And yet they push me to do it uh, more, to understand more to be more flexible, to change, uh, to grow. And they've done that their whole lives. And, um, and what I want them to take from it is, and you know, there, there's a, I really, I really talk about it a little bit in the book. There's this part where it's, it's really, uh, it, it's based around the, the time when my dad baptized my son, Drew, the oldest in church. And he, he, um, had a sermon called a conversation with Drew in which he, he talked about all those things. One of those, which was, you know, remember who you are, which was a thing he always said to us, you know, in a way that we always took to be, remember who you are because you're an Archibald and you reflect on all of us and, and all that. But, but I really want them to remember that whoever, who I am and where they came from and who their ancestors are and what their role in society is, I mean, at, at the point of their birth doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, because who you are is something that you decide every day and every way. And if you, if you screw up yesterday, that doesn't mean you have to do it again today. Um, it just means that, you know, I mean, I believe that you, you can determine who you are. And I, and I think, and I'm very proud of who they have turned into and uh, look forward to who they will be. Um, but I want them to make those decisions. And I fully expect that one of them will, uh, end up having to write a book about how screwed up I was at some point. <laughs> Let's put the wills down on this interview with one last question. As a scholar and a teacher of rhetoric and writing, I'm compelled to think of the different ways I could incorporate shaking the gates of hell in my classroom. I could see instructors using your book in cultural rhetorics classes and in classes about the memoir, what do you have to say about bringing your book into the writing classroom and what goals would you hope teachers had? What knowledge do you hope is created among students? That is such an interesting question. You know, I mean, because it's, 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 it's pretty unusual. I mean, I have several theories about writing, which may or may not apply here. Um, uh, one is, I mean, the, the first theory is that, um, and I try to do it a lot. If I try, if I, if I, if I am writing something that is really heavy, I will want to balance it out with something that is lighter. If I make you cry, I want to make you laugh. Uh, I want to make you feel all of the things that you can feel. Um, that's how I measure success in a piece of writing for me is if I, if I can make somebody feel anything, then I feel like I've done okay. Um, and that, those are different things. I might want you indignant. I mean, I might, when I say I might want you, well, yeah, it's my goal. It might, it might, my goal might be to make you indignant or it might make you to be, uh, it might make you angry or it might, uh, might give you understanding or it might make you laugh or it might make you, make you cry. And, and I think that I'm not, not, I'm certainly not the only one that believes that, but um, uh, I, I, 
I want that to uh, sort of be understood. But I also think that if somebody's going to look at this um, and if they think it has worth, I think that's because it has, I mean, it, because I've never written anything that poured out of me like this in the sense that when I found those things and I began to understand what was going on, um, it came out of me in an amazingly uh, direct way. Uh, and it, it was like I couldn't keep it in. And I think that's just because so much of it was coming straight from my heart that it did sort of bypass my brain in some ways. And I think that when we write from the heart, I mean, which is also a cliche, but when we write from the very inner essence of ourselves, that it becomes a truth, that um, it's certainly a truth the way we see the truth. And, um, and I think readers can tell the difference when that happens. Um, and so I, I, I hope anybody that's looking for, for you know, uh, if, if you want to write something personal, you better b bear it all. And that means, you know, examining yourself as much as you examine anyone else. I guess from the steps of the capstone to the halls of Harvard, it's been quite a ride so far. <laughs> Um, is there anything else you want to mention or that's important to you before I let you off here to enjoy the rest of your day? Uh, no, I mean, I, I just, uh, I, I want to just tell you what a pleasure it is. Your questions. And uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to have to be listening to the podcasts. I mean, you, you, you've got such a great style of, of, I just, I look forward to all your other podcasts. Oh, thank you very much. That's um, high praise. I think so as someone who's familiar with your work. So I appreciate that. In Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Dr. King writes, quote, It is the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. King continues in his letter, I am coming to feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wills of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. End quote. I believe John's book is doing this hard work, this good work, creating good trouble, as the late, great John Lewis would say. I appreciate him taking the time to sit with me, and I so enjoyed learning from him. The equitable future John speaks of and writes about may still be a dream, but the hard work is being done, in some cases, tirelessly. Call me an optimist, but I believe our society is getting there. We'll get there. In his book, John writes a great deal about Methodist hymns and the way music from his dad and Murray and Steve and others fill up his memories. One hymn Charles Wesley wrote is called, Come, O Thou Traveler Unknown. Here's an excerpt. Come, O Thou Traveler Unknown, whom still I hold but cannot see. My company before is gone, and I am left alone with thee. With thee all night I mean to stay, and wrestle till the break of day. I implore you, to embrace the traveler as a better future for all bodies. Black, brown, gay, straight. A future we must struggle and fight and wrestle for in the hopes that one day 
we can rest if only for a moment. John deserves some rest after taking on this book project. You can pick up Shaking the Gates of Hell, a search for family and truth in the wake of the civil rights revolution now and listen to it on audiobook. You can follow John on Twitter at John Archibald. I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. We have nominations coming in each week, so make sure to get your nomination in by May 15th. And don't forget to donate if you can. You can find our nonprofit information and GoFundMe pinned to our Twitter page at The Big Rep. Don't forget, the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival is coming up in August. The carnival already has more participating podcasts than in our inaugural year. And we're probably going to add a few more along the way. Remember, our podcast carnival theme is contending with misinformation in the classroom and the community. We will announce our keynote speaker before the end of season four. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Music for this episode of the podcast is by Corey Ankers, co-founder and chief creative honcho at Hey Buddy Creative Collective. Hey Buddy is a creative marketing agency based in Birmingham, Alabama, and they're doing some really cool stuff. If you want to see some funny videos, you should go check them out at HeyBuddyCC on Insta and HeyBuddyCC.com.